Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, hello there, my friends, and thank you for tuning in to this Bible study podcast. It's getting to be about that time of year, and I hardly know what to give people for Christmas. I usually give people close to me just some greenbacks. But when it comes to this podcast, I've known for some time what I wanted to give to my listeners for their uh, holiday episodes. I want to introduce you to a couple of men this week and next week, because knowing about them is almost, not quite, but almost like knowing people from the scriptures. These are men, two men, who lived in New Testament times. They knew the apostles, but they outlived them, and they are two of our earliest post-apostolic heroes. Their names are Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. So today and next week, I'd like to take a little excursus into Christian history and introduce you to these two fascinating men. First, let me say that if you're interested at all in Christian history, then I have a book called On This Day in Christian History, which is now out of print. It was one of my first books. It tells 366 episodes in Christian history, and it tells every one of them on the day when that particular episode occurred. Because it's out of print, we went to our publisher, HarperCollins Christian Publishers here in Nashville, and asked if we could give it away for free. And they said, you can. We gained permission for that. And so if you'll go to my website, which is robertjmorgan.com, scroll down to the bottom of the homepage, you'll see a little link there that says Devotions from Christian History. And if you'll simply punch on that link and give your email to us, then every day you will get a story, a vivid story from Christian history that occurred on that very day. On this day in church history, available by linking up with the bottom of my uh, homepage of my website, robertjmorgan.com. Well, in that book, you will learn something about Ignatius and Polycarp, but on this website, uh, or rather on this podcast, I want to go into greater detail than I'm able to do on the page that I have in that book. Remember that the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, was probably written in the last decade of the first century. My own theory is that the Apostle John was younger than Jesus by maybe 10 years, and he outlived all of his New Testament contemporaries, and it seems that he was the only disciple that died a natural death. He lived almost to the year 100. He might have been close to 90 years old when he died. He wrote the book of Revelation, I believe, in maybe the year A.D. 91 or 92 or 93. He was perhaps in his 80s and living in the city of Ephesus. But when he died, 
sometime before the end of the first century, he left some of his disciples behind. Many people knew the apostle John. He was revered, and it's not as though everybody in his generation or everybody in the church suddenly died with him. They were still there, and at the time of his death, many Christian leaders were still alive. They were writing letters and books. Uh, many of them had been won to Christ or discipled by John or by one of the other New Testament heroes, and so we have preserved for us some of these very early documents written by these men. They are our earliest Christian writings apart from the New Testament, and they tell us something about what was happening in the church as the apostolic era ended and the post-apostolic or the patristic era was about to begin. Here is what was happening at the end of the first century and at the very beginning of the second. Now, I love studying this sort of thing because I'm an advocate for Christian history. I cannot understand why it is that so many Christians today have little interest in the history of the church when it's because of the faithfulness and the stirring stories of prior generations that we have had the faith brought down to us today. I don't understand why various churches want to sort of erase all of their history and become so postmodern that it's as though the church began with this generation or with the time when a particular pastor came. We need to appreciate the history and the legacy and the stories of the faith that has brought the cross and Christianity down to us. And so from time to time in this podcast, I want to veer into Christian history and tell you some of these stories. Now, the patristic and, and the post-apostolic writings are obviously not inspired or infallible. We don't take them as Scripture. They are fallible. They're very human. But they do give us insights about how Christians lived and behaved in the days immediately after the apostles. Well, the one who does this best, or the two men, I should say, are Ignatius and Polycarp. So today we'll look at one. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the other. And let me introduce you to Ignatius of Antioch. Now, you may remember from our study of the book of Acts that when Christians were persecuted and driven out of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8, many of them went up north to the great city of Antioch, which was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, a fabulous city, and it had a very large Jewish quarter there. So this became the primary church of its day. The center of gravity moved from Jerusalem up to Antioch. This city, by the way, still exists in southern Turkey, several hundred miles north of Jerusalem. Well, in the book of Acts, Barnabas went up and oversaw the church, and he recruited Saul of Tarsus, or the Apostle Paul, to help him. And the church there became very strong, and it was here that the disciples were first called Christians. The church at Antioch is also the church that sent out the first locally congrega uh, local congregationally supported missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary tours we read about in Acts chapter 13. Well, sometime after Barnabas, apparently, from what we can piece together, Peter became the bishop or the head of the church there and oversaw the ministries in this entire region. And then later, a man became the leader of the church whose name was Ignatius. We believe that Ignatius was actually a disciple 
of the apostle John, maybe one to Christ by him, maybe tutored or mentored by him. Certainly he knew him. And this man, Ignatius, zealously defended the gospel against certain heresies that were sweeping into the church at those times. One of these heresies is called docetism, docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism. And this claim that Jesus Christ only appeared to have a human body, which only appeared to suffer and die on the cross. His body was not real. He had a spiritual body of some sort, but it wasn't a literal physical body. Docetism denied the full humanity of Christ and the full nature of the incarnation, and we believe that John was beginning to attack this. Remember in one of his epistles, he says, um, if anyone says that Jesus did not come in the flesh, then let him be accursed. Well, this particular heresy apparently was picking up steam, and so Ignatius fought it with all of his heart. He was a very strong advocate for defending the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Well, there was another problem also, not only heresy, but also persecution. And so at some point, shortly after the death of the Apostle John, political pressures and persecution grew, and there in Antioch, Ignatius found himself in danger. He was arrested, and he may have been placed on trial in Antioch. Some accounts say that Emperor Trajan came to Antioch, which wouldn't have been surprising. It was such a major hub in Asia, such a great Roman city, the third largest in the empire, and that the emperor demanded everyone sacrifice to the gods. Ignatius, being the head of the church, and Antioch refused, and Trajan ordered that he be transported to Rome to be fed to the beast in the Colosseum. It may very well have happened that way, but however it happened, there's no doubt that Ignatius was bound in chains and turned over to a group of ten soldiers, whom he called his ten leopards, who marched him across what we call today Turkey, modern-day Turkey, towards the city of Rome, where he would be thrown to the wild beast. Well, as Ignatius traveled across Turkey, the churches all heard about it. And in the various cities, they gathered to watch him pass, and he often had a chance to preach to them or to meet with the leaders or the people of these churches in the major cities through which they went. The early church historian Eusebius of Caesarea wrote, Ignatius was sent from Antioch, Syria, to Rome, and became food for wild animals because of his witness to Christ. He was brought through Asia under the strictest guard, strengthening the Christian community by speech and encouragement in every city where he stayed. He warned them, in particular, to be on guard against the heresies that were then first beginning to spring up, urging them to hold fast to the apostolic tradition which he thought necessary to put in writing for safety's sake. And so as he traveled, he also wrote letters to the various churches to give them a lasting remembrance of his visit and to write down what he wanted them to remember. Ignatius wrote seven different letters as he made his way as a prisoner across Asia Minor, and he wrote to the church at Ephesus, to the one at Magnesia, 
to the church at Trallis, to the church at Rome, to the one at Smyrna, and also a personal letter to Polycarp. So I would like to share with you, I obviously can't read all of his letters to you, but I want to share with you uh, a little bit from some of the letters to give you an idea as to what this man might say in these circumstances. His letter to the Ephesians is the longest with 23 chapters. Now, they are short chapters. It doesn't take time, not a very long time to read them. But nevertheless, I'll read you only some excerpts from the letter of Ignatius to the church at Ephesus, written not all that long after the death of John the Apostle, to this church that had been established by Paul and to whom Paul had earlier written the letter to the Ephesians, which is canonical, biblical, inspired, and infallible. The letter by Ignatius is not New Testament-inspired writing, but chronologically speaking, this is as close as it can possibly be to the epistles and to the writings of the New Testament. The bishop at the church of Ephesus at this time was a man named Onesimus, and it may have been the very same Onesimus who we read about in the book of Philemon. Ignatius is very keen that the church respect its bishop. You'll see this theme come up again and again. So here's a sample of what Ignatius wrote to the Ephesians. Ignatius writes to the church at Ephesus in Asia, most worthy of all blessings, greetings in the fullness of God the Father, and especially in Jesus Christ and in blameless joy. I take the opportunity in advance to encourage you so you will agree with the will of God. For Jesus Christ, our common life, is the will of the Father, as also the bishops who are appointed in various regions are in agreement. Your bishop Onesimus loves you beyond words. It is him I ask you to love in accord with Jesus Christ, as well as all of you trying to be like him. Blessed is he who graciously gave you such a one as bishop. He goes on to say, It is fitting that you agree with the opinion or the will of the bishop, like strings tuned to a harp. For this reason, Jesus Christ is praised in your harmony and in your united love. Now, each of you become a chorus together so that by a united voice and harmony, as you take up the tune of God in unity, you may sing in one voice through Jesus Christ to the Father. This is so that the Father may hear and recognize you by the good things you do, that you are members of his Son. Ignatius went on to say, Bishop Onesimus himself highly praises your good order in God because you all live in accord with truth and because no heresy lives in your midst. Nor do you listen to anyone more than to the one who speaks about Jesus Christ in truth. For some are accustomed to bear the name of Christ with an evil guile while practicing other things that are unworthy of God. These are the ones you should avoid like wild beasts, for they are like mad dogs. And then speaking of the Lord Jesus, notice this, and Ignatius refers to both the divine and the human natures of Jesus. He has a wonderful paragraph here in which he implies that Jesus is both God and man, and he refers to Christ as a physician. Here is what he wrote. There is one physician, both fleshly and spiritual, born and unborn, 
becoming God in the flesh, true life and death, from Mary and from God, at first suffering and then incapable of suffering. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He went on to say, I recognize some who were passing through there with evil doctrine. You have not permitted them to sow evil doctrine among you because you have plugged up your ears as not to receive the things sown by them. And then listen to this very eloquent passage. As stones in the Father's temple, he's taking up some Pauline language here. As stones in the Father's temple, you have been prepared to be God the Father's building, lifted up to the heights through the crane of Jesus Christ, which is the cross, as you use the Holy Spirit for a rope. You are fellow travelers, God-bearers, temple-bearers, Christ-bearers, bearers of holiness, well-ordered in every way in the commands of Jesus Christ. And then he said to them, pray unceasingly for others. And then he especially wants them to be cautious and evangelistic towards the false teachers. He said, in their case, there is hope of repentance that they may obtain God. Permit them to become disciples by seeing your works With regard to expressions of anger, be meek. With regard to their boasts, be humble. Meet their blasphemies with your prayers and their deception with your steadfastness of faith. Meet their unruly life with your gentleness and be diligent not to imitate them. And then he said, these are the last times. Be diligent together more frequently for thanksgiving and glory to God and Ignatius ended his letter to the Ephesians, saying, I am going to Rome in chains. I, the least of all the believers there, was counted worthy to be found for the honor of God. Farewell in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ, our common hope. Well, you can pick up some of the Pauline language and references that he used. So that tells us he was very, very familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul. Well, as Ignatius trudged across modern-day Turkey in chains, he next wrote to the church in the city of Magnesia, which was not too far away, also in Asia Minor, telling them to respect their bishop even though he was quite young. And he told us something interesting about how and when Christians worshipped, no longer on Saturday or the Sabbath, but on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Now, remember, this dates to very early in the second century. Very late in the first century, the Apostle John had said in the book of Revelation that he began receiving his visions when I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Well, here Ignatius uses that same phrase. He said to the church at Magnesia, If those who lived in the old ways come to the newness of hope, they no longer keep the Sabbath, but live by the Lord's Day. On this day, our life dawned through him and his death, which some deny. Ignatius' third letter was to the Trallians. He exhorted them to respect and to obey their bishop and their deacons, and he warned them again against false teachings. And then his next letter is to the church at Rome. And this was the church in the city to which he was being taken in chains. He wanted his letter to get there before he does, and there was a reason for it. He didn't want anything to stand in the way of his martyrdom. He longed for or anticipated martyrdom. This was true for a lot of those 
early martyrs. They began to think that this was really something, if not to be sought, at least to be embraced. So here is his letter to the church at Rome, portions of it. Ignatius to the church that presides in the region of the Romans. It is worthy of God, worthy of propriety, worthy of blessings, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy of purity. I greet your church in the name of Jesus Christ. He went on to tell them that he was looking forward to seeing their God-worthy faces. And again, he didn't want the Christians in Rome to try to intervene on his behalf. He wrote, Do not prevent me from being poured out to God as a libation. It is good that I should be like the sun setting from this world, so that I might rise to God. I willingly die for God, if in fact you do not prevent me. I appeal to you not to be inopportune, even with a noble purpose. Permit me to be food for the beasts. I do not command you, as Peter and Paul did. They were apostles. I am a criminal. Well, Ignatius' next letter is to the church in Philadelphia, which was also in Asia Minor, and that was one of the churches addressed by John in the book of Revelation. Now, remember that Ignatius may have written his letter only about 10 or 15 years or so after the book of Revelation was sent. And John, when he wrote to the church in Philadelphia, or we have that little seven-verse segment to the church of Philadelphia, had said, I know your deeds. I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. And John commended them for enduring some level of persecution, especially from some nearby Jewish synagogue. Well, 15 or so years have passed, and the Philadelphians were still contending with some of those issues. Ignatius commended the bishop in Philadelphia, and as we read through his letters, uh, both here and others, notice that there is a structure that keeps showing up of the local church, which at that time had sort of evolved into a threefold organization. So here is what Ignatius wrote to the church in Philadelphia. Ignatius, to the church of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ that is in Philadelphia of Asia, this church has received mercy has been established in the harmony of God and rejoices in the sufferings of our Lord unquestionably and is fully confident in the mercy of his resurrection. I greet this church in the blood of Jesus Christ, a church that is eternal and has abiding joy, especially if they are at one with their bishops, with his presbyters or elders, and with the deacons who have been approved in the mind of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, warning them against these, whatever this Jewish uh, struggle was they were having with their opposition, he said, if anyone tries to interpret Judaism for you, do not listen to him. It is better to hear about Christianity from a man who has circumcision than about Judaism from an uncircumcised man. But if neither of them speaks about Jesus Christ, to me they are gravestones and tombs of the dead on which only the names of those men are inscribed. Flee their evil practices and the snares of the ruler of this age, lest you grow weak in love by this troubling of mind. Rather, come together and an undivided heart. Ignatius' last two letters were to the church at Smyrna as a congregation, and secondly, a letter to its famous bishop named Polycarp. 
Now, once again, Smyrna was one of these churches addressed in the book of Revelation. Fifteen or so years earlier, John had told them, I know your afflictions and your poverty, and yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid about what you are about to suffer. Well, that was a decade or so before. Now, what is going on? Well, this heresy of docetism is troubling the church that Jesus only appeared to have a human body. And Ignatius wrote to the church in Smyrna specifically about this and about the truly human body of Jesus. So here is the words of Ignatius to this church at Smyrna. Truly, he was nailed to the cross for us under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch, that he might carry the banner for the ages through the resurrection of his holy and faithful ones, whether Jew or Gentile, in the one body of his church. He suffered all these things for us to be saved, and truly he suffered as he also truly raised himself. It is not as some unbelievers say that he only seemed to suffer. And finally, there is this poignant letter to Polycarp, the bishop at Smyrna, which I'll profile for you next week. Polycarp's story is also very interesting. So here Ignatius wrote to Polycarp, one bishop to another, both of them later to be slain for their faith. But Ignatius said, I encourage you in that grace with which you are clothed to set your course and to encourage everyone to be saved. Vindicate your position with a physical and spiritual diligence. Linger constantly in your prayers. I love that phrase. Linger constantly in your prayers. Ignatius went on to tell Polycarp to be wise as a serpent in everything and always as harmless as a dove, reflecting some of the words of Jesus. And he told him to have the perseverance and the endurance of an athlete which we, that kind of terminology we read about in the book of Hebrews and also in the writings of Paul. Ignatius reminded him to make sure that widows were cared for and to write to other churches with news about one another. And so we will look at Polycarp next week, but those are some of the kinds of things that Ignatius said in his letters, including that final one to his fellow bishop. So those are some excerpts from the letters of Polycarp. That's all the writings that we have from him. Nothing else survived except for these letters and the story of how they came to be written. At last, he apparently arrived in Rome, where he was martyred under the reign of Emperor Trajan. He was apparently torn apart and devoured by the wild beast in the Colosseum. The traditional date of his martyrdom was December 20th, the year 107. Historian Philip Schaff says that only a few of his bones remained, and these were carefully gathered up and conveyed back to Antioch for burial. Well, what can we learn from these writings of Ignatius? Clearly, at this time, there was a threefold organizational level in the church. We see this in almost all of his writings. There was a bishop, and there were elders, and there were deacons. Now, remember that these were the days of house churches. I don't know how often all of the Christians in Ephesus 
could go to some big building or maybe go outside of town to an open field and get together. I don't know how often all of the Christians at Smyrna could meet together. They didn't have any church buildings yet in those days, and so they met in house churches. It would seem that every significant city had a church leader, a bishop, and many elders or a number of elders who probably served as the pastors of these house churches under the authority of the bishops or the bishop and the deacons, we can presume, worked to tend the flock in various practical ways under the guidance of the elders. So I believe very deeply that in the New Testament there are two ordained offices. There is the office of the elder or the presbyter or the overseer or the pastor or the shepherd or the bishop. I think in the New Testament, all of these terms are simultaneous. And then there is the office of the deacon. But in practical terms, there's got to be somebody who is ultimately bearing the responsibility for the major decision making. So that would end up being the chief elder or the bishop in every town. And so it became, even though there were two ordained offices, a threefold structure, the bishop and the elders, and then under them the deacons. Now, this is not very different from what I've experienced throughout my entire ministry. I was a senior pastor in a church. I had an ordained staff to help shepherd the flock, and we had deacons to assist in practical and invaluable ways. And this is a very workable structure that can be adapted in almost any environment. So people are very interested in the fact that by the time of Ignatius, in most of the cities, apparently, there was this threefold structure. Now, I do want to point out that Ignatius did not tell us anything about there being bishops over regions or a bishop over the entire church or the fact that the bishop in Rome was to be in control of the entire church. He was simply talking about a workable structure for local cities. And apparently the bishops of these various cities were equal and they were friends with one another like Ignatius was with Polycarp. Ignatius was the bishop in Antioch and Polycarp was in Smyrna, but there is no sense that one answered to the other. It's just that this was the way the church operated at the beginning of the first century in the various cities of the Roman Empire. Ignatius was very keen that the church members in every city respect and obey their bishop. He was more dogmatic about this than I would probably be today. But remember, the church was young, it was combating false teachings, and these bishops were responsible for keeping the church from veering off into heresy and to keep things together in a day of persecution. Well, in terms of theology, Ignatius, as I've indicated, following the teachings of the Apostle Paul and of the New Testament writers, he often quoted from or alluded from these New Testament scriptures, as I have pointed out. He taught that Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully God, and this is very important to remember. Some years ago, during the Da Vinci Code hysteria, I remember this very well when Dan Brown brought out the Da Vinci Code novel and it became a movie and everybody was talking about it. The idea seeped into the public mind that the dual nature of Jesus, that he was both God and man, was something that had been decided by the Council of, Le- uh, of, the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. But that was not so. Ignatius wrote to the Ephesians in the name of Jesus Christ our God. 
That's the way that he put it, quote, Jesus Christ, our God. And in the same letter, he wrote, our God, Jesus the Christ, was conceived by Mary according to God's design, his from the seed of David and of the Holy Spirit. He was born and baptized that he might purify the water by his passion. In other words, the theology of Ignatius was grounded on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and in, term of his, in terms of his person, he was both God and man, and in terms of his work, he both died and rose again. Now, one aspect of Ignatius's theology has generated some questions. He seemed to have believed that the real presence of Christ was in the Eucharist or in the Lord's Supper. In his letter to Philadelphia, he wrote, Therefore be diligent to employ only one Eucharist, for there is only one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, and there is only one cup for unity in his blood. There is one altar, as there is one bishop together with the presbytery and the deacons. So it is from Ignatius that we, however it was that he interpreted the Lord's Supper, it is from him that we get the tradition of the Lord's Supper being conducted by ordained church officials, by the bishop or the elders or someone authorized by them. In other words, it would seem that Ignatius had a very high view of the Lord's Supper, and not just anybody could officiate that, but it had to be done within the hierarchy of the authority of the church in a way that guaranteed and respected its reverence and its dignity and its truth. So we can learn all of this from Ignatius, but above all, it seems to me, from the life of Ignatius of Antioch, we learn that God places his people in every generation. When the last apostles had died, nothing slowed down or ceased in the Lord's work. Men and women like Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna and all of the believers in the growing churches were there to carry on and to pass down the message of the cross through the centuries to us who now bear the privilege of passing it on to others. Every generation has faced the possibility of martyrdom as Ignatius did. Every age has been forced to condemn for the integrity of the faith once for all delivered to us, as Ignatius did. But in this way, the kingdom of God advances across the earth until our Lord comes to establish his kingdom that will never end. Well, this is an introduction to someone that maybe you didn't know much about before, but he was very important and is very important in studying church history. One of the earliest people outside of the New Testament whose writings we have, Ignatius of Antioch. I hope that you've enjoyed this excursus into Christian history. It seems logical as we've finished our studies in the book of the Acts of the Apostles that we take at least a couple of weeks and see what happened during the new years, the years uh, right after uh, uh, the first century. And so today we looked at Ignatius. Next week, we'll look at the second of our two early heroes, Polycarp of Smyrna. I want to say that while I've consulted several church histories for this podcast, my primary resource is a book by Kenneth A. Howell, H-O-W-E-L-L, Kenneth, I should say Kenneth J. Howell, entitled Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna, A New Translation and Theological Commentary. 
Kenneth J. Howell, if you want to study this more, Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna, a New Testament translation and theological commentary published in 2009. And also see the new translation and commentary of Eusebius by Caesarea by Paul F. Meyer, published by Kriegel in 1999. Well, before we go, let me say one other word about history. The Christian influence in American history is also very important. It's a very vivid story, and it's vital that we know this. And I am eager to get a copy of my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, into the hands of every school librarian, every school child, every mayor, every city council member, every member of a school board everywhere in America. Just help me distribute this book. It is called 100 Bible Verses That Made America. It is a biblical tour through American history. You can find it wherever books are distributed, or you can find it on my website, robertjmorgan.com. Thank you for joining me with this podcast today. It was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. Music is by Elijah Rowe. And this is Robert J. Morgan signing off and saying, God bless you and God be with you until we meet again.